So Matthew chapter 9, verses 18. As Jesus was saying this, the leader of the synagogue came and knelt before him. My daughter has just died, he said, but you can bring her back to life again if you just come and lay your hand on her. So Jesus and the disciples got up and went with him. Just then a woman who had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding came up before him. She touched the fringe of his robe, for she thought, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be encouraged, your faith has made you well. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus arrived at the official's home, he saw the noisy crowd and heard the female music. Get out, he told them. The girl isn't dead, she's only asleep. But the crowd laughed at him. After the crowd was put outside, however, Jesus went in and took the girl by the hand, and she stood up. The report of this miracle swept throughout the entire countryside. After Jesus left the girl's home, the two blind men followed alongside him, shouting, Son of David, have mercy on me, on us, sorry. They went right into the house where he was staying, and Jesus asked them, Do I believe, do you believe I can make you see? Yes, Lord, they told him, we do. Then he touched their their eyes and said, because of your faith, it will happen. Then their eyes were opened and they could see Jesus. And Jesus sternly warned them, don't tell anybody about this. But instead, they went out and spread his fame all over the region. When they left, a demon-possessed man who couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. So Jesus cast out the demon and then said, and, and the man began to speak. The crowds were amazed. Nothing like this has ever happened in Israel, they exclaimed. But the Pharisees said he can cast out demons because he's empowered by the prince of demons. Jesus travelled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Harvest, Ask him to send more workers into the fields. That's lovely. Thank you very much. Okay. I was... um, Good morning, everyone. Um, I was a little bit concerned about standing up here this morning because I I accidentally arrived late last night to the the Wototo presentation. And it meant that I, I could sit at the back, which I don't normally do. And, and so when they asked us to dance, I thought, this is great. I can be uninhibited here. No one can see me. I can, I can really go for it. So I, you know, I got involved. I was doing all the moves, jumping up and down, uh, until I ended up turning my ankle in and uh, needing to sit down for the rest of the evening. Um, but thankfully, it's all right today. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to make it to the end. Um, can we have the PowerPoint? Great. Thank you. So we're on uh, week six Believe it or not, of our series, We Are Church. Um, We've got a couple of weeks left. We've got a few more um, areas we want to explore together in this series. Uh, Hopefully by now you've got the idea that this is a series all about our identity. Uh, Our identity individually, our identity identity collectively as well. It's about who we're called to be as believers, as followers of Jesus, um, both ourselves and as Tamworth Elim Church here in this place at this time. Um, We're not a perfect church. Apologies this morning if you thought that we were. Um, But before you run out the door, um, let me just say in our defense that that no church is the perfect church. And it's because they all have the same problem. And that's that they're full of people. And people are messy, aren't they? Steve spoke last week about how people are messy. And we're um, broken. We're imperfect. We're 
lost and hurting and self-destructive and wavering and all of these things. We're not the finished article, but we're on a journey, right? It's a journey of, of transformation. God is slowly changing us into the people that he created us to be. And we're learning to embrace a new life, a new reality. Paul tells us that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. So in the middle of all this kind of mess and chaos, we have these beautiful moments where we embrace that newness, where we get things right and where God can be seen clearly in our lives. And that's where we stand out from the crowd. I think Paul puts it wonderfully in another of his letters. In fact, it's to the Corinthians, which we're going to be studying next. But he calls us jars of clay. Fragile, breakable, cracked pots. Not cracked pots, that's something else. And yet God shines out of the cracks. God works through us. And so there's always this tension, you know, learning how to live in this, in this new creation. And, and uh, you know, what we've been saying really the last few weeks is that in all of this, Jesus is our supreme example. Isn't he? When we adopt his attitudes, when we become more like him, that's when God shines brightest in our lives. And so we've been looking at what these qualities of Jesus are over the past few weeks, and we've, we've talked about being loving as Jesus was loving. That means that we love beyond expectation. That we want people in this church and outside of this church just to know how much God loves them. We talked about being servant-hearted as well as Jesus was servant-hearted. You know, we're not interested in this church in self-elevation, in making ourselves look good, in building ourselves up. We want to go lower so that we can build other people up. We want to be servants. We believe that that's the greatest thing that you can be as a servant. And then last week, Steve spoke to us about how we're inclusive. Again, as Jesus was inclusive. About, you know, we want to be the church that reaches out to those that the world pushes away. We want to bring them in. We want to embrace them. And so when we do these things individually and as a church, when we're loving and servant-hearted, when we're inclusive, that's when God shines through us. And that's when people want to know more about us. They want to get involved. They say things like, I never felt love like that before. I never thought anyone would be so interested in me. Or I can't believe how far they went to serve me in my, my time of need. I just felt so special. Or I just... You know, I just felt at home straight away. I never thought I'd be accepted the way that I was. And these are the sorts of testimonies that I've heard from people in this church. It's true, and I'm so thankful um, that that is the case. So the more we adopt these attitudes, the more God works through us to reach others. And this morning, what I want to do is just take a few minutes to talk about another one of these attitudes. Um, And this morning, that is the attitude of compassion. What is compassion? Well, the best definition that I've found as I've searched the internet um, this week is this one. It's that compassion is a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune, accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate that suffering. A deep sympathy and a strong desire. I think that's the definition that gets us closest to how the Bible talks about compassion. And I want us this morning just to focus on three aspects of compassion that I think we find in Matthew chapter 9, which is where the reading was from when we found it eventually. And they are the call of compassion, the cost of compassion, and the consequence of compassion. 
There you go. If you're into taking notes, you've got three easy, neat titles, all beginning with C. I'm going to pretend to be a real preacher today. Um, So firstly, let's talk about the call of compassion. What is the call of compassion? Well, we know that we're called to be like Jesus. Paul says that the Lord, who is spirit, makes us more and more like him, and we are changed into his glorious image. And so our focus individually, our focus as a church, is to become increasingly more like Christ in our attitudes towards each other uh, and to the world. And Jesus was most certainly somebody who was filled with compassion. His ministry, his time on earth was really defined by his compassion towards other people. His ability to see the needs of the people that he met and then to do something about it, to act in love. And Matthew 9, I think, just gives us this snapshot into a life that's filled with compassion for others. We've only read a portion of it um, together this morning, but the whole chapter is filled with these acts of compassion. There's, there's four healings, two recovers, uh, recover from blindness, one recovers from paralysis, one from bleeding. We read about Matthew being befriended and called by Jesus. And Matthew was someone that was, was a tax collector. He was despised by others. But Jesus has compassion on him and he calls him. And then him and his disciples, they go to his house and they have dinner with a whole bunch of other people that were despised um, by the folk of the day. There's an exorcism, uh, which led to a mute person being able to speak. And then there's this incredible story of Jesus raising a young girl from the dead. It was a busy afternoon. And Matthew just wants us to see that Jesus' life was full of all of these acts of compassion for those around him. Actually, chapter 8 and chapter 9, as you, as you read through uh, the Gospel of Matthew, they go together. We need to remember that the Bible didn't originally have um, chapters. It was one long thing, um, the book of Matthew was anyway. And there's even more acts of compassion in chapter 8. There's more healings, including leprosy and more paralysis. There's more exorcism. And Jesus even goes as far as to heal Peter's mother-in-law. It doesn't say if Peter was happy about that, but (laughs) Jesus did it anyway. I don't mean anything by that. And then almost, almost is by way of summary, at the end of chapter 9, he writes in verse 35 and 36, Jesus travelled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news of the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. He was moved by what he saw, and it drove him into action. Now, the Greek word here that we, we translate in our Bibles as compassion is the word splunknizomai. Okay? That's a fun word to say, right? Splunknizomai. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, um, as you can tell, I'm sure. Um, but I think it's interesting sometimes to, to get to the root of these words in the Bible. Now, try not to be immature when I tell you what this one means. Um, but splunknizomai means to be moved as to one's bowels. Okay? It's true. You can look it up. So next time you're desperate for the loo, you can shout, Splunknizomai! It's all right. I'm going to bring it back. Don't panic. It's not going off the rails. Um, but you see, in ancient times, the bowels were thought to be the seat of love and of pity. Okay? And Matthew wants us to know that what Jesus has here is this deep feeling in his gut. 
you might say it was gut-wrenching. This wasn't Jesus saying, oh, you know, look at those people, the crowds. I feel kind of bad for them, guys. You know, they've got all these problems. They don't know God. They're far, ele- far away. You know, I think we should maybe do something about him. This was, like, this was like a punch in the stomach. This was hard. The message, it gives us um, a more up-to-date parallel, which helps us understand this. It says that when he looked over at the crowds, his heart broke. He was heartbroken for the people. Because they were lost and they were harassed and helpless and they didn't know God. They were afflicted. They were suffering in all kinds of ways. And then Matthew, he finishes the chapter in this way. And this is, this is the bit where really where the call comes to us. Because it says he turns to his disciples. So that's, those are the ones that are learning to be like Jesus, his disciples. So that's us, okay? He turns to his disciples and he says, The harvest is great, but the workers are few. Look at all this need. Look at all this hurt. Look at all these problems that are before us. The harvest is so plentiful and the workers are few. Now you might have expected at this point that Jesus would say, you know, come on you twelve, get out there, go and do something about it. You know, help out a bit, will you? I'm carrying all the load. But he doesn't say that. He says, so pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest and ask him to send workers into the field. He doesn't say, come on, on your bike. He says, come on, on your knees. And I wonder why he says that. If you read on, actually, into the next chapter, we find that Jesus does send the disciples out to deal with some of that need. But he asks them to pray first. And I think he asks them to pray first because I think compassion is something that actually doesn't come naturally to us. Sure, there are many people in the world that are compassionate. There are many people outside of the church that perform many wonderful acts of compassion. You know, we see about them, we read about them. But I think for the most part, for most of us, there are certain attitudes, there are certain things that keep us from being compassionate. I think apathy is one. You know, when perhaps we just don't, we just don't notice the needs of other people around us or further afield. You know, if it's not a part of my life, then, then I'm not interested you know, next Friday is, is Red Nose Day, isn't it? And uh, whether it's comic relief or children in need, they always put on those really good bits of telly with lots of entertainment and, and lots of things to make you laugh. And then they throw in those little heartbreaking stories in the middle, don't they? And, um, you know, be honest, how many of you use those clips to go and make a cup of tea or just see what else is on the telly? I know I've done it. But I think it's really easy to just become indifferent to the suffering of others, especially when it doesn't immediately affect our lives. Or maybe it's not apathy, maybe it's self-preservation. You know, like when you see someone and, and you know they've got all the problems, and you know if you say to them, hey, how's it going, that they're, it's all going to come flooding out, and then that's your whole morning gone. And so, you know, you do that thing where you just pretend you've got, you've got a phone call and you, you walk past and, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've obviously never done that, but I'm sure you haven't either. Now, I say it's self-preservation, but I wonder how many times it's really just self-comfort. I can't, can't be bothered with that today. I've got my own things going on. Sometimes it isn't apathy or comfort. I think sometimes it's actually hatred. And this might be a hard one for us to admit this morning. I can't show them compassion. You don't know what they're like. I'm sure there's a reason for it. I can't get involved. Oh, if only you'd known what they'd done. 
You know what Jesus tells us to do for people that we hate? He says, pray for them. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. It's not an easy thing. I know, I've, I've been there myself. But the thing is, the more we pray for people, the harder it becomes to hate them. Because the more you pray for someone, the more God is going to give you his heart for them. You see, I don't think that Jesus asked the disciples to pray that God would send workers into the harvest because he expected God just to send somebody else. I think he asked them to pray because he knew that God would need to change their heart first. He needed them to see not significant problems, but to see significant people. Right? They needed moving beyond their apathy, beyond their indifference. They needed moving out of their comfort zones. They needed moving past perhaps their prejudice and hatred. And so I think this is why Jesus asks us to pray. You know, compassion only comes when we identify with people, and identification comes through prayer first. Matthew says when Jesus saw the crowd, his heart broke. He identified with them. Mother Teresa, who was uh, known, I'm sure most of you heard the name Mother Teresa, she's known for her acts of compassion. This is what she said. This is kind of one of her prayers. May God break my heart so completely that the whole world falls in. And maybe the question we need to ask ourselves first as we consider the call of compassion on our lives is, who does our heart break for? You know, if we don't have an answer, then maybe we need to pray. Maybe we need to start asking God to move us out of complacency into compassion. And I think for some of you this morning, that, that God actually broke your heart for a group of people a long time ago. I, for me, it was, it was teenagers, believe it or not. For others, it might be children or, or families, or it might be the, the elderly or the young adults, or it might be drug addicts. It might be those trapped in pornography. It might be those that are single mothers. It might be bikers. I don't know. Are you still heartbroken for them? Are you still praying about them? Is God still stirring you up? Do you, is the time come where actually you need to start to be moved into action for this group of people? Because that's what happens. You know, as we start to pray, God moves us into action and we have to be prepared for him to so profoundly break our hearts that we can't help but want to do something about it. And there's a cost. And this is the next section. You know, with comic relief, the cost is money, but with Christ, the cost so often is our life. I want you to jump back into Matthew 9 for a few moments as we think about the cost. I want us to look particularly at verse 18 to 25. And what we have here is that, that Matthew, he, he gets two very short stories and he just sort of squashes them together. And Matthew's in a hurry to tell us all of these different things. And he, he leaves a lot of the detail out, bless him, um, in his haste. Thankfully, Mark and Luke fill in some of the details for us. Um, but verse 18, he says, uh, The leader of the synagogue came and knelt before him. My daughter has just died, he said, but you can bring her back again if you just come and lay your hand on her. So Jesus and the disciples got up and went with him. And as I say, uh, Mark and Luke, they give us a little bit more information. They tell us that the synagogue leader was actually a man called Jairus. Um, they tell us a little bit later on that, the, that his daughter was 12 years old. And what they, they also say is that, in fact, when Jairus first found Jesus, his daughter was still alive. And what he was doing was asking Jesus to come and heal his daughter. It was a healing that he wanted initially. And then a short time later, um, somebody else arrives from his household and they say, Jairus, your daughter is dead. 
don't bother the teacher anymore. Don't bother him. There's nothing more you can do. It's too late. Jesus is undeterred. It didn't matter to Jesus that now the task was seemingly impossible. Certainly according to those from Jairus' household. Jesus went anyway. He was compelled by his compassion. I just wonder this morning if sometimes we're prevented from acting on our compassion because we believe that there is nothing we can do. That there's no way that we could possibly make a difference. And you know, maybe that's true, but here's the thing. Jesus can make the difference. Paul says that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then the story gets interrupted. Verse 20, suddenly he, he, he writes this. Just then, a woman who had suffered for 12 years of constant bleeding came up behind them. She touched the fringe of his robe, for she thought, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. Now again, Mark and Luke, they give us a bit more detail. They tell us that this woman was desperate. That she was destitute. That she had spent every single penny that she had. That she had sold her possessions all to afford doctors and care and desperately hoping that she would be made better but never being made better, only getting worse. So she's this desperate, desperate character and it says that she heard about Jesus. And, you know, if you, if you heard that there was just a chance that someone could heal you after 12 years suffering, you would just go for it. But there was a problem you see, according to ceremonial law, she was unclean. She wasn't even allowed in the synagogue to worship. And so here she was trying to get close to a Jewish rabbi, that's Jesus, who at this time is currently being accompanied by the leader of the synagogue. How could she possibly do this? How could she get near enough to receive her healing? And so she... She notices there's a large crowd around and she thinks, if I could just maybe just sneak through the crowd. And so she puts her hood up and she starts to sort of work her way through and, and, and weave her way to the front. And she, she gets just within grasping distance and she's a bit hesitant to go forward. And then, and then Jesus turns a corner and his, his cloak majestically waves out behind him. And she thinks, that's my chance. And she just brushes it with her fingertips and Jesus stops dead. The disciples weren't paying attention. Three of them walked straight into him. And he says, wait, who touched me? And the disciples say, yeah, come on, Jesus. You're kidding, aren't you? There's like 50 people here. Let's get on with it. We've got to get to Jairus' house. And he's insistent. He says, no, who, who touched me? And the woman is sort of trying to get back into the crowd. And, and eventually she gives up and she just falls at his feet before him. And Jesus says, daughter... Be encouraged. Your faith has made you well. He calls her daughter. There's hardly anyone in Scripture that Jesus calls daughter. It's this term of loving endearment. Now the thing is, her touch would have contaminated him. It would have made him unclean. It would have meant that he would have to go through rituals of purification before he could touch anyone else or eat anything. But Jesus never has a problem identifying with people that everybody else considers unclean. He wasn't concerned about the cost to himself, about the cost to his reputation. His concern was for her. It was for this woman, this woman who had no hope. His concern was about lifting her up, making it known to everyone there that she had value. 
that she was healed, that she was now acceptable to all. Now, he doesn't record this in the, in the Gospels, but I imagine that he, he helped her to her feet. And then after this, um, we arrive at Jairus' house. Verse 23, it says, When Jesus arrived at the official's home, he saw the noisy crowd and heard the funeral music. Get out, he told him. The girl isn't dead, she's only asleep. But the crowds laughed at him. It seems odd, doesn't it, that you know a 12-year-old has just lost their life and people have it in them to laugh at Jesus. But in those days, it was the custom that you would hire professional mourners. Even the poorest of families were expected to hire no less than two flutes and one wailing woman. It's an interesting job, isn't it, wailing woman? I wonder if you know anyone. Um, it's likely they had no emotional attachment to the family whatsoever. They certainly had no compassion. But Jesus did. Jesus moves past those who ridiculed him. And as the crowd were put outside, it says in verse 25, oop, bit far, um, Jesus went and took the girl by the hand and she stood up. Jesus made the difference where no one else could. Jesus made the difference where no one else dared. And you see, Jesus wasn't concerned about associated with others, with others that people wanted nothing to do with. And he wasn't concerned about others laughing at him or calling him foolish. He was willing to pay that price. And of course, we know Jesus' compassion eventually led him to the cross, where he faced the greatest cost, his life. And there again, we see that he was ridiculed. But for the sake of us who are unclean, he paid the cost, that we might be called sons and daughters. Jesus is our example, our supreme example, but there are examples in modern history as well, and uh, you know, of, of people that have shown wonderful, impressive compassion. I just want to um, share with you briefly the, a story of Father Damien, this, this priest that I read about um, this week. That's his photo. Um, Damien, he'd been sent on a mission to the Hawaiian Islands. Sounds all right, doesn't it, actually? Mission to the Hawaiian Islands. And this is around 1870. Um, but at the time, there was a leprosy epidemic on the islands. And in order to try and curb the spread of the disease, the government had shipped out several hundred people to an island, the island of Molokai, all on their own. Left them to it, creating this leper colony. And Father Damien, whilst understanding the risks, and in those days they believed that leprosy was far more contagious than we know it is today, he believed that it was his duty to go and minister to these people on the island of Molokai. And the bishop and the priest in charge of his order, they were, they were concerned about him taking on this heavy duty. And they wrote to him, they said, you know, you stay as long as your devotion um, uh, dictates. But, you know, you, you come back when you're ready to come back. Because this is going to be tough. And when he arrived, he found that the colony was poorly maintained. It was in disarray. The people there, um, they had no one to care for their medical needs. And so they turned to alcohol. Most of them were alcoholics. There was a lawlessness in the streets. They lived in these broken down shacks. It was just awful. And Damien realized that he needed to restore a sense of personal worth and dignity. And so he gets involved. He washes their sores. He dresses their wounds. He cleans their rooms. He tidies their beds. He makes them as comfortable as possible. When they die, he holds services for them. He gets music and musicians to come and play at the services. He digs the graves with his hands. He builds the coffins by hand because he, he had skills in carpentry as well. And he encouraged those on the island to get involved, and, and with their assistance, they built everything. They changed the, the broken-down shacks to painted cottages. They constructed the church. They built a home for the children. 
And because of his work and this sense of dignity and joy coming to the island, their despair and their lawlessness disappear. And in 1885, after spending several years working at the colony, he himself contracted leprosy. And despite the illness, he continued to work for a few more years before eventually in 1889, having spent 16 years in total on Molokai, he died. And he wrote to his brother in his final days, I am gently going to my grave. It is the will of God. And I thank him very much for letting me die of the same disease and in the same way as my lepers. I am very satisfied and very happy. Incredible, isn't it? But Father Damien, he understood that you, you can't show compassion at a distance. You know, empathy, maybe, but compassion requires closeness. It requires action. It means that we, we might have to identify with people that others want nothing to do with. It means that we might be up for some ridicule. John writes um, in 1 John, If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? And you know, true compassion has a cost. It always has a cost. It might be our money, it might be our time, it might be our energy, it might be our health, it might even be our lives. But it also has a consequence. You see, acts of compassion have the ability to change lives. Through largely practical work, Father Damien changed the lives, transformed the lives of every single person on that island. You know, Jesus restored that woman's health and dignity and he gave Jairus his daughter back. And as I prepare my sermon this week, there's one person that has kept popping up to my head, and um, that's Jackie. You know, for those that don't know Jackie, she was the assistant pastor here before me, and she left to go uh, on mission to Malawi. God broke her heart for those people. And if, if you don't know about her, there's a new missions board that Amy's put up for us this week, and you can read about her on there. But, you know, it hasn't been easy for Jackie. There have been costs that she's had to pay. She lives in a country where she doesn't pay... Uh, doesn't speak the language. Her health has suffered uh, with malaria, we were praying for at the start of the year, and she's had to deal with so many deaths in the community. Often Jackie is the one that goes and, and has to collect the bodies from the hospital. And yet, we have seen children in this church on the baby feeding program that have gone from the brink of death to life, restored to health. We've seen the lives of people in that community just transformed by the love of Jesus through practical Real, earthy works. And I'm really, oh, Jackie's going to be back with us um, the Sunday after Easter, and I'm really looking forward to, to hearing again um, about the work going on out there. And, you know, maybe the examples we've given this morning are big examples, sure. You know, you think, how can we aspire to that? But even small acts of compassion have far-reaching effects. Do you ever, um, you ever play that game where you're walking down the street and you see someone who's looking really miserable... And then you try and catch their eye and you smile and see if you can break them and make them smile back. No? That's oh, just me. It's fine. <laughs> try it. We'll be trying it later. It's fun. Um, but that's what compassion is like. When we show compassion, it inspires compassion in others. You know, I meet so many people in the coffee shop in the week who come in to drop off a, a, a box of food for Food Bank because either they've been helped by Food Bank or simply they've seen that, that we're trying to show compassion to those that have nothing to eat and they want to get involved. Now, the same thing happened with the night shelter that, we, you know, that we've just finished the trial of. So many people wanted to volunteer, to help, to, to offer um, uh, blankets and T-shirts and hoodies and, and, and ways of supporting just from a few people having compassion on the homeless in the town. I've got, I got one more quote from, from Mother Teresa. 
She said, I cannot change the world, but I can cast a stone across the waters to create many ripples. And we should never, never underestimate the, the, the consequence of small acts of compassion. I just want to show you a, a short uh, video clip uh, now. It's from an advert from a few years ago. Some of you may have seen it, but I think it really illustrates this point um, well, just before I finish. Everyone all right? It's emotional, that one, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> We're called to be compassionate. There's a cost to that compassion, but the consequences are far reaching. Jesus' compassion led him to the cross where he paid the price for us. Cost paid 2,000 years ago. And you know, as Jesus hung on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. His compassion ran so deep that even in his dying moments, he still prayed for us. I find that utterly incredible. I want some of that. I need some of that compassion in my life. So let's pray that God would break our hearts for others. That we might be a church that sees significant people and not significant problems. And let's pray that we might be willing to, to pay the cost to see others saved. Yeah? Okay. The band want to come and join us? We're going to sing one more song this morning. Let me just close in prayer before we do that. Father God, we thank you for the compassion of Jesus. That he is our example in all things, but in particular this. Father, I pray that you would break our hearts for the people in this community, in this town. Father, that you would break our hearts so completely that the whole world would fall in. That you would drive us into action. Father, I pray that we might be that church that always sees people through your eyes. That you give us your heart for people. And Father, I pray that we are willing, that we step up to pay the cost, just as Jesus did. That we might see people saved and brought to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.